Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 235 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Anti-Fragile, an interview with Lauren Kingsley. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, this is a really special episode, and I think this is a young woman who is personifying a really important characteristic that you need to have in order to be successful in a Lyme disease journey, and that is you have to be anti-fragile. You need to be able to overcome challenge after challenge after challenge on this journey to ultimately become healthy. So without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Lauren Kingsley. Hey, Lauren Kingsley, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, Lauren, why don't you share with our listeners where you're calling in from today? I'm currently calling in from my hometown of Morristown, New Jersey. So you're an East Coast gal. I am, yes, born and raised. And uh, so were you born in the Lime Belt of New Jersey? I was born in Denville, which I I would assume is the Lime Belt. I'm not entirely sure where the coordinates end and like start and end, but yes. Yeah, it's really the whole East Coast. We, uh, those of us who are living on Long Island, of course, uh, think we have more Lyme disease than anyone else. But uh, as it turns out, I think actually the state of Pennsylvania has more than anyone in the last year. And, uh, you know, so the tri-state area, the New York, uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania areas all are full of Lyme disease. And I'm sorry, young lady, you did grow up in the Lyme Belt. I did. Yes. Yeah. So talk to us about, talk to us about what, what it was like to grow up in New Jersey as a young gal um, in the Lime Belt. My childhood was very normal. I mean, I was sick a lot, but, you know, back then my parents and I, I'm an only child for context. And back then my, my parents and I just assumed that I just had a below average immune system. We didn't really have any thoughts that there could be a deeper problem beneath the surface. And my dad and my mom both have chronic illnesses and they know what the medical community is like. And they didn't want to throw their six, seven, eight-year-old daughter into the medical realm without having a concrete idea of what the problem could be, because that's just going down a rabbit hole. Um, So I just, I, I mean, I had a good childhood. I really don't remember any bad events. I do remember getting sick a lot. I mean, I had the swine flu. I had the flu almost every year. I had bronchitis. I had walking ammonia. Um, I broke a lot of bones. I broke my tailbone, which is always a funny story to tell. Yeah. Um, and very painful. But very painful. Yes. Um, and I became known in eighth grade as the girl who broke her butt. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, but other than those injuries and, and, yearly illnesses and um, food allergies that I grown into, there wasn't any like looming dread or um, I guess hesitancy on my parents' behalf because they just thought that because of their history of chronic illness that, you know, eventually something would come to the forefront and we'd understand what was causing my myriad of symptoms. So Lauren, there's always the chicken and the egg question that we ask to young people who say that they were sickly as young people and then ultimately are diagnosed with Lyme disease. So let's let's get to the chicken or the egg before we spend a little bit more time going through your, your, your background. Um, do you believe that you had a compromised immune system genetically? And as a result of that, you uh, came in contact with a tick and you um, you suffered Lyme disease, or do you believe that you either had congenital Lyme disease and or came in contact with a tick early on in your life and that compromised your immune system and resulted in you getting sick? I think it's probably a combination of both. 
uh, I do know that when I was first diagnosed, my doctor did test my mom and dad for Lyme. And one of the strands that I tested positive for, my dad also tested positive for. And so there was the link and connection that was made that, okay, there is a significant chance that I was born with Lyme disease. But I also started playing golf when I was about five years old. And I soon played it almost every day and then went into the competitive realm of golf. So I think there's a chance that I could have been reinfected or infected with other strands. So I don't have a concrete answer to your question. Yeah. So I, and, and I don't know if there's ever a concrete answer to it. We have to just speculate about that. Right. But uh, another one of the things, of course, we've spent a lot of time with is interviewing golfers. Uh, and, uh, and we've actually profiled several golfers uh, on our Instagram page uh, because Golf is a very dangerous sport. Most people think it's not a dangerous sport, but there are many, many people whose lives are um, impacted by Lyme disease because they're spending so much time in, uh, in the golfing community. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about golfing and, and how you got into golfing and what role that played in your life. Sure. So I actually live up the street from a golf course. If I just walk down the road, you hit the 15th hole, 15th fairway. And from a young age, my mom just really loved golf. She always made it a point to get involved at the club or even the local community golf course. And I love my mom. We have a very close relationship and anything that she was doing, I wanted to try. So she took me out one day and I just fell in love immediately with the sport. And um, being a type A personality student, it gave me a chance to not be neurotic about school and just enjoy myself and be one with nature, which I thought would be calming, but as we'll learn, not necessarily. Um, but I just fell in love with the game because of the mental complexity. And it's really not a sport about agility or physical prowess, but it's more about your understanding of how your mind can control the outcome of a sport, which I still find fascinating to this day. So as part of um, developing your skills as a golfer, uh, were you taught anything uh, about any of the risks of golfing? I know in some parts of the country, for example, you're always uh, warned to watch out for snakes or, or, or want to watch out for uh, alligators or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, were, there, were there any risks that you were, um, you were prepared to protect yourself from or to avoid when you were learning the sport of golf? That's a good question. I'd, I'd say, well, growing up in New Jersey, no, which is shocking considering it is the line belt. But then when I went to Florida for high school, uh, I did play golf in high school and every day it was training on how to outrun an alligator, which sounds insane saying that out loud. Um, but shockingly, no, there was nothing mentioned to me when I was little. I mean, obviously I wore bug repellent because I didn't want to get insect bites on the course, but there was no discussion about Lyme or snakes or tick-borne illness. Right. So, so when you went to Florida, you were warned about alligators, right? Be careful right. if you're on the course to avoid alligators. And, and, uh, but when you're in New Jersey, in the middle of the Lyme belt, you weren't given any information about how to avoid ticks, how to check for ticks, how to remove ticks, or how to protect your health in the event that you come in contact with the tick. Yeah, there was no there. Now that I'm thinking about it more, there was no precautionary measure that I was ever introduced to when I was younger. 
about Lyme or ticks. So let's talk about your, your education. You said you were educated in New Jersey until you went to high school and then you were educated, um, your high school education was in Florida. So talk to us about what your educational experience was like. Sure, so when I was in New Jersey, I went to a Montessori school up until the sixth grade. I loved it, had a fantastic experience, very small class sizes. Um, I was very sick during elementary. I do remember taking two to three weeks off of school because of illness, whether it be bronchitis, flu, et cetera, each year. Um, and then for middle school, I went to a more standard uh, private school for seventh and eighth grade. And that was also a very good experience and probably one of the hardest times of my life, I guess, health-wise. And now I know it, but at the time, I don't think I could recognize it, A, because I was so young, and B, because I was already sick, but didn't have the understanding of that yet. Um, I could barely eat anything. I was maybe 70 pounds and constantly worried and just obsessed with my grades. If anything, if I, I was one of those kids that people make fun of today, that if I got a 97, I'd ask where are the three points. So, you know, it was just, it was obsession to an unhealthy degree. And I know that now, but again, I, I didn't at the time. And, and, and it was a, it was a, you know, it was a good experience overall. I don't mean to say that it was bad. Um, and then when high school came around, my, my parents and I, we had this discussion and my parents weren't really happy with living in the Northeast with the weather. And they, they wanted a fresh start. They wanted somewhere where they could be in a climate that was more, you know, amicable to people who had joint pain because my parents both experienced that. And so we looked to Florida because my grandparents spent half the year in Florida. And at the time, my parents tried to find some sort of camp for me when they were staying with my grandparents because they wanted me to have an activity that I could do, go do during the day. And that's how they found IMG. And as soon as I stepped foot on that campus, I knew within my bones, I had to convince my parents to let me go to school there, which would turn out to be a huge feat. <laughs> um, and I, I just fell in love with everything. I fell in love with the campus. I fell in love with the program. I fell in love with the school. And soon enough, we were on a flight to Florida. We rented an apartment sight unseen with our dog. And the rest was history. And I spent three years there. Well, actually, let me backtrack. I spent two years during high school there uh, before my illness struck. And I eventually... Um, thankfully to the amazing staff and teachers at IMG was able to finish my high school degree there. But um, I'd say without IMG, the staff, the faculty, just everyone there, I would not be the person I am today. I mean, they, they stuck by my side through the worst of things. And they were some of the only people that believed me when I was sick. Well, let's talk about this really cool educational experience you had before you went to college. And we're going to get to college in a minute. Uh, you had this, uh, the benefit of um, Montes Montessori education. You had the benefit of then, I guess, a public school education after Montessori. Then you went to school in Florida. So you really had uh, an enriching educational experience. During any of these enriching um, educational experiences that you had, did you learn anything about ticks, tick diseases, and how to protect yourself from and protect your health from getting sick from a tick vector? Yes. Sorry. I was just trying to collect my thoughts. Yes. I, interestingly enough, that education didn't really happen until 
seventh or eighth grade. And the only reason I say that is because the school that I went to, part of their curriculum at the end of the year was to go on a camping trip. And the camping trip was either in Pennsylvania or Northern New Jersey, I don't recall. During the camping trip, we went on hikes. And I remember it was very vague description. It wasn't, you know, very in depth, but it just said, they just said something along the lines of, you know, be careful for ticks. You should look for ticks when you get back and wear lots of bug spray and be careful where you're stepping and make sure that you're wearing pants instead of shorts. And ironically, on one of those trips, I was bitten on the eye by a spider and my eye swelled up uh, to the size of about a baseball. Uh, And I tell people that it was a Halloween costume as a joke, because I think it's funny. (laughs) Obviously it's, it's not, but no, the education was, it it is funny. It is funny now. Um, Yeah. But no, the education was very sparse growing up. I, there was never a big discussion. And I, I even remember now, now that I'm thinking about it, they, they handed out a piece of paper and they just said, you know, if you come in contact with a tick, just take it off. You'll be fine. If anything happens, go to the doctor. You'll get antibiotics for three days and nothing will happen. So you were given some very general information about how to protect yourself from ticks, although they didn't tell you what kind of bug spray or how to apply the bug spray or where to apply the bug spray. You were told not to wear shorts um, and you were told that if you find a tick, you should remove it. And that's it. Pretty much. Now, having grown up in the Lyme Belt, did you know anyone who was diagnosed with Lyme disease, either an adult or a child? Yes. I, well, my family knew of one person and she was the mom to one of my best friends in elementary school. I didn't know she had Lyme until I was going through my journey and my mom recalled that she did have Lyme disease. Um, but I do remember when I would go over to my friend's house for playdates that her mom was very lethargic and had little to no energy and being neurotic. (laughs) I thought, Oh my gosh, her mom doesn't like me. What did I do? What did I say? Obviously it was none of those things. And she was just very sick from Lyme. So yeah, that was the only exposure I really had to the disease. Uh, there wasn't any figure besides that one parent who I, I really didn't have a close relationship with that had a tick-borne disease. But at the time that you were observing the symptoms in your friend's mom, you didn't even know that she had Lyme. This is something you discovered after the fact. There, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I was probably about nine or 10 when I was going over to my friend's house with her mom that had Lyme disease. And I, I didn't know that it was Lyme. I just knew that she wasn't feeling well. So Lauren, when were you finally diagnosed with Lyme disease? How old were you? I was two months away from turning 18, so 17, technically. So talk about, talk about how your symptoms developed up to the time and before you were diagnosed with Lyme disease. And um, give us some sense of how many different doctors you visited with for the symptoms that you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms. Well, this is a long story. <laughs> Well, I guess if I were to pinpoint my symptoms and their start date, I would have to say that it began in middle school because I started having difficulty eating and I just didn't want to eat. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was an eating disorder. I had body issues. It was just that anything that I consumed made me dreadfully ill. I would vomit. I would have 
diarrhea. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. And so I just resorted to smoothies. And, you know, my parents just assumed that I had a lot of food allergies and I would grow out of it. There was no concern for anything else that was more serious. And then that kind of resolved as freshman year came and went. And then my sophomore year, I just remember being plagued with paranoia about everything, about people watching me, someone watching me change, someone following me down the hallway at school, someone looking through the stall in the bathroom, just incessant thoughts of just evil and terrifying images that would circulate through my mind at night too. And then it it all started to really hit, I'd say, the spring of 2016. That's kind of when I had my first event that caused the cascade of all my symptoms. And I'll tell the story because I think it's meaningful for for this and, and for backstory. But I was driving to the gym and I was at a stoplight and it was a very familiar area. I could drive to this area with my eyes closed. I, I didn't need any kind of GPS or navigation system. And I just remember kind of staring out the windshield and traffic was moving as usual. There was nothing to be concerned about, no ambulances. And all of a sudden, my car was in the middle of the intersection in the green light. And there was a red Honda Civic barreling towards me from the other side. And I just wasn't moving. And I thought in that instant, holy crap, I'm going to die. This is how my life is going to end. I am going to be impaled by a red Honda Civic that is barreling towards me. And I I just froze. I didn't have any wherewithal of where I was. I I couldn't press the gas. I couldn't press the brake. I couldn't shift gears. There was no concern or thought of you need to move or you need to get out of the situation. I just froze. And I sort of came to my eyes sort of fluttered. And all of a sudden I was in the gym parking lot. And nothing happened. So Lauren, it sounds like your, your symptoms began as gut issues, right? You, you started yeah. to have gut issues and then the gut issues began, began to trigger um, mental health issues and then neurological issues. And that's how things were developing, right? And we, we generally see, we see this pattern often where we, you know, where we have gut health issues that ultimately result in neurological and mental health issues, right? So um, how do things go from there? And uh, actually, before, before we move on, did you see any doctors for the gut issues? And did you see any doctors for the neurological or the, or the psychological issues you were, you were dealing with? Yes. So that's, for, well, um, let me backtrack. That fall, so fall of 2016, I did see a gastroenterologist. I should preface that my dad side of the family has um, a long line of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So at the time we were all kind of assuming, oh, well, you've got it now. So welcome to the family. Nothing more than that. Um, I visited two different gastroenterologists and I ended up going through an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. Both kind of came back inconclusive. Uh, The colonoscopy did result in seeing a few ulcerations in the ileum, which is part of the small intestine, but it wasn't enough to warrant the diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And the gastroenterologist I was seeing was very hesitant to ascribe the label of Crohn's disease to me because I was so young. And the treatment that is standard for Crohn's disease is intense. 
So I understood that obviously at the time I was frustrated because I wanted an answer, but looking back, she made the right call. Uh, in terms of neurological or psychological, I, I didn't see anyone for a neurological evaluation, but I did start seeing a psychologist because my parents were noticing tendencies of anxiety that they thought I should talk to someone about. And through our discussions, she then recommended me to a psychiatrist and I was put on Lexapro for my anxiety, which did help to a certain degree. It didn't mitigate the issues of the hallucinations I'd come to have and the visual impairments that I described earlier. But for a, com- for a complete neurological evaluation, that, that didn't occur until much later on. So now when these doctors were examining you and coming to inconclusive diagnoses, uh, was there ever a thought that maybe there was a, there was a link between all these things and that link may have been Lyme disease? Was, there, was it ever on the table? Was it ever discussed? Unfortunately, no. There was never a consideration for, okay, there has to be an underlying root cause that is causing the myriad of symptoms that I'm experiencing. They can't just all be random events with no correlation because, you know, in medicine today, it's treat the symptom, not the cause. And that's what I was experiencing in Florida as a young girl, 14, 15. And most of the answers that I got from doctors were, oh, you're in a growth spurt. Oh, it's hormonal changes. Oh, you'll you know grow out of this by the time you're 18. No need to fret. No need to worry. There was no consideration for, okay, but why is she experiencing so many of these symptoms at such a young age? It was very much, okay, let's just treat what's affecting her the most and see if that helps. So what were you thinking about when you were going to all these doctors, you were taking all these tests and they were at best helping you to manage some, certainly not all of even the symptoms of what you were managing? I was so neurologically impaired at the time. Well, obviously I didn't know, but now I know. I was very neurologically impaired at the time. And I just became more and more depressed because it felt like no one was believing me except my parents. And thank God I had parents that believed me and knew that there was something wrong with me and it wasn't psychosomatic because if I didn't have that support system, I don't think I would be here today. But I, I, I just kind of fell deeper and deeper into this abyss of darkness and as I'll tell later, you know, it took years to, to dig myself out of that. So Lauren, as you're, as you're exploring this portion of your journey with me, I'm wondering whether or not this abyss was, was the consequence of uh, your neurological line, or was it the consequence of medical trauma, um, or was it all of the above? What, what, what do you think was leading you down this dark path, and what role do you think um, uh, you know, uh, medical trauma played in uh, this portion of your journey? That's an excellent question. I, I think it is a combination of both, to be honest. Um, my grandpa, uh, who is no longer with us, he was a doctor. And ever since I was little, he, I was the only granddaughter and he instilled that, you know, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to go to medical school. I was going to be the next Dr. Kingsley in the family. He wanted that for me. And as a four-year-old, obviously I can't understand what that means, but as I grew older, 
I started to realize, yeah, I want to help people. I want to save people. I want to be the superhero that sweeps in, figures out what's wrong and helps someone live their life better. So when I was going through my illness and I just saw how I was being treated by these doctors as someone who just desperately needed help, I realized that the illusion that I had painted of doctors as a young child was false. And so I think the realization that the doctors who I thought were the ones who were going to save my life were actually the ones that were slowly killing me because they weren't able to listen or to really examine the root cause made me kind of have a teenage life crisis for lack of a better word. (laughs) But in, you know, in tandem with that was the fact that I was just getting sicker and sicker and I was neurologically impaired. And with the hallucinatory man that I had each day trying to threaten to kill me, holding pillow over my head, trying to assault me, there was just so many forces at play that I, I, I really think that it was a combination of medical trauma and my neurological state contributing to the um, abyss. And do you believe your neurological state was, was generated by Lyme disease? Yes. So now <clears throat> let's, let's take this, uh, take, take the next step. So you, you, you're having these uh, gut issues, which are now not diagnosed. You have uh, neurological issues that are not diagnosed. You're having mental health issues that are not being diagnosed. Um, some of this is being masked by uh, some form of medication. How are things developing from there? What, how are symptoms developing from there? And how much closer are you getting to your Lyme disease diagnosis? So I should preface uh, the beginning of this answer by saying that the hallucinations that I was experiencing, I did not tell my parents. In fact, I did not tell my parents until I started to write my book and only did my parents figure out when my mom read the first chapter. And she's like, oh my God, are you trying to make like a Stephen King novel? That's so cool. And I'm like, no, this was my life. Like, this is what I went through on a daily basis. Um, I know that's probably questioned why I hid that from my parents if they were so supportive, but I, I was just going to ask that question. So yeah. you, you anticipated my question. So please help me, help me through yeah. that. Why, why didn't you share that with your mom and your dad? Yeah. So my mom was my caretaker at the time. My dad was working full time to support us. I love my mom. She is my best friend. But she is the type of mom that would do anything, fight tooth and nail for her child to get the best treatment. And there was something inside of me that knew that I wasn't insane, that knew that I didn't have a psychological disorder. And I knew that if I told my mom, she would try and find someone, you know, very high ranked in the um, psychological or neurological field to examine me. And then try and supply me with a medical cocktail of different antipsychotics. And my mom watches a lot of Dateline. And I see what happens when people say that they see things and they end up in padded rooms. That was not what I wanted for my life. <laughs> so at the time, I, I thought that trying to keep this under wraps and keeping it to myself would be my best bet for at least staying with my parents. Because my worst nightmare would be being by myself in a room where I, I couldn't contact them. So this was a combination of responding to the medical trauma that you were facing for many years at this stage in your life and concerns that your mom would 
in her zeal to be a great mother and to try to find a solution uh, might cause you to suffer greater medical trauma because um, she wanted you to get better. Right. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, like saying that out loud now, it's quite amazing that even though I was so sick, I still had the wherewithal to acknowledge and understand that because I think that's such a difficult concept to grasp, even if you're not ill. I agree. I think it is. I think it is a really powerful um, uh, concept and a very difficult concept to to grasp. And, you know, we've interviewed many people on this podcast. Ali Hilfiger, for example, uh, was actually institutionalized and she was not diagnosed until she was institutionalized. So, you know, of course, one of the questions that I'm, I'm asking is, you know, did you did you fail to get an earlier diagnosis that you might have gotten had you gone to a place like that? Um, in the same way that Ali Hilfiger did. And again, the medical trauma cycle puts you in a position where you're now afraid of the doctor. So you're not sharing with your caretakers what your symptoms are because you don't want to suffer more medical trauma, but then you're not getting your diagnosis. And it's just sort of like this spiral of, of failure by the, by the industrial medical uh, complex uh, as a result of these people not doing their jobs and then not getting the information they need to do their job for you. Right. Yeah. I, that, that's also a very pertinent question. I mean, I, you know, I say this and I, I, I am sorry to anyone that lives in Florida, but the medical care system there for Lyme disease is not strong at all. Uh, they, they really don't acknowledge it there. They just kind of think that it exists in the bubble that is the East coast, but we all know that that's false. Um, so I, I, I really don't know, even if I was institutionalized, I don't know in Florida if they would have recognized or maybe even thought about Lyme because I don't think it was even on the radar. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you just, you never know. I mean, I, and I think Ali Hilfiger was lucky as well, right. But when she went to, when she went to a very high end, a mental health facility, her initial doctors didn't diagnose her either. It was it wasn't until she asked for another doctor because she was very she was very troubled by the you know the lack of care that she was receiving that she finally found the doctor that she credited with saving her life. Uh, so you, you just don't know, right? I mean, you, you just don't know whether or not that's a path that would or would not have been helpful to you. And we don't know whether or not you would have gotten an early diagnosis or not. But I think it's really scary to think that you were hiding symptoms from the people who were trying to protect you, which may have led to your diagnosis. And, you know, that, that, um, you know, that's just a, you know, a very, very, I think challenging part of, uh, of your story. So, so talk to us about how you finally got diagnosed. I mean, how did you find the doctor that diagnosed you after you were going through, you know, years of, of, of incompetence in the medical community? Yeah. So it was probably about the winter of 2017, I'm trying to align all the dates in my head. Um, I was in a wheelchair at that point. I had severe joint pain and it felt as if every time I was taking a step, my joints were popping out of their sockets, just excruciating pain. I can still remember it to this day. Um, and I, I was just so neurologically impaired. This is kind of where my memory gets fuzzy because I really don't remember what I was like in those days because of everything that I was enduring. But my mom kind of describes it to me as someone who, you know, is diagnosed with autism, like very curious about the world around them, but non-expressive, unable to communicate, unable to form sentences. I guess we communicated verbally through like hand gestures. I I really don't know, to be honest. Um, 
And at that point, my parents pulled me out of school because they knew that I was heading towards a brick wall. And they're like, we need to figure something out. This is getting to be um, absolutely insane. And there's clearly an underlying reason for all of her different symptoms. But I think what really happened in the winter of 2017 is um, my gastroenterologist recommended that I go see a, I guess, more experienced gastroenterologist in Miami uh, who would make the jurisdiction of whether or not I be put on, what is the name of the, it, it's a biologic, I, I, I'm sorry, I forget the name of it now, uh, Humera, Humera, whether or not I'd be put on Humera, because at that point, my parents and I thought that if I was, would be put on Humera, that my life would turn around and everything would be fine. And maybe I did actually have Crohn's disease. And that was the, the source all along. So we drive to Miami, I'm lying flat in the back with um, an eye patch over both my eyes, because the light bothers me and ear, um, ear, soundproof earplugs. We wait about six hours to see this doctor. And as I'm sitting in our office, describing my symptoms as best as I can to my cognitive abilities, she then proceeds to tell me that um, it's all in my head. There's going to be no cure for my illness. And maybe you're just one of the rare people that has one of those illnesses that they haven't discovered yet. And that I need to get prepared and ready for the fact that I may exist like this for the rest of my life. That this is what my reality would be like and consist of on a day-to-day basis. And perhaps, you know, I needed this awakening or wake up call from her to realize that this was going to be my future. This was going to be my life. And I just remember, this is the only thing I remember from that day. She walks out the door and I just remember with all my might, I screamed, I hate her. And everyone in the office could hear it. And as soon as my parents wheeled me out, everyone was like giving me a death stare. And that's the only thing I remember. Um, and, and after that, my parents and I, uh, me, not so much, but my parents knew they're like, my child is not going to spend the rest of her life like this. She, she is not, you know, this isn't who she is. There's something going on and we're going to find someone who knows what's going on. And I think, right, can we pause that for a second? Cause oh, I want to sure, tell sure, you, sure. I want to tell you, I hate her too. Okay, I'm sorry. Go on, go on. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, sometimes when I'm like feeling down, I'm like, I did that. <laughs> anyway. Um, that is really cool. Yeah. Um, so where was I? Yes. Okay. So my, so my parents were kind of, so my parents actually had this ingenious idea to go online and, and take, they took half the office. So my mom had like A through F and then my dad had like F through Z, whatever. I'm not sure how they split it up. And they went through every single autoimmune disease and they went through every single infectious disease, looked at their symptoms, looked at their causes, looked at their presentations and tried to match everything that I was experiencing to the symptoms or presentations that they saw for each disease. And when they reached Lyme disease, my mom was like, oh my God, this is Lauren. Like she is a 100% match for Lyme. Everything that she's been enduring for the past year is everything that Lyme says. So let's pause and, there for a second, Lauren. Let's, sure, let's yeah. pause there for a second. So how many doctors had you seen up to the point where your parents were turning to Dr. Google? <laughs> um, I'd say seven doctors. Oh, I forgot about a doctor in New York City. So eight, eight doctors. So you've now seen eight doctors who have had the opportunity to look at the same exact symptomology that your parents were, were, were investigating. None of them 
come to the conclusion that they should test you for Lyme disease. Your parents go on Google, study every autoimmune disease, and they find the one that matches you perfectly by referencing Dr. Google. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and ironically, when they were doing that, obviously I couldn't partake in that exercise because I was just so far gone neurologically. But I remember lying on the couch in the hotel room because we were still in Miami at that point. And I remember a bug crawling across the table on the coffee table. And it wasn't, it wasn't a tick, but it was a bug. And I just remember looking at it and I had a hallucination that it was looking back at me. And that's kind of when I had this internal instinct that I think a bug did something to me, or I think a tick did something to me, because obviously at the time I couldn't process what the concept of Lyme disease was, but through this hallucination, I kind of metaphysically understood that this being imparted this illness within me. So let's, let's talk about that because we, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about body signals and body confidence and our bodies telling us what we need. Perhaps this was a hallucination or perhaps it was not. Perhaps this was a body signal telling you what all of these other doctors couldn't tell you and was confirming what your parents had discovered when they used Google as a tool to evaluate and to, and to uh, describe your symptoms. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I go back and forth with that as along with a few other scenes. I call them scenes because I feel like it's a horror movie. <laughs> um, I, I go back and forth between that along with other points in my illness of whether or not they were fact or fiction. Because on the one hand, it would seem that if it was reality, it would make sense because there are things in our life that, you know, there are angel signals, there are signals from divine beings, there are just signals because of bodily time and space, but it could be a hallucination. And it's kind of like the chicken or egg question you asked me in the beginning. I don't really know, but I think both are plausible explanations. Well, see, one of the challenges that I don't think we spend enough time talking about is the impact that medical trauma has on your ability to read your body signals, right? Because when you're sitting down with a doctor, right, you're, you're, you're a young kid in a wheelchair and the doctor is saying, hey, it's all in your head and you're going to have to live like this for the rest of your life. And I'm so happy you yelled you hated her. And, 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 and that kind of trauma causes you to feel less comfortable with believing in your own signals and believing yourself and believing what your body is telling you. Right. So we have this, we have this duality of, of trauma where we're being beaten down by the failures of these doctors. And then we start to not just doubt ourselves emotionally, but we start to doubt whether or not the signals that we're receiving are even real or the hallucinations. Are they, are they something from you know, an otherworldly being or do they not exist at all? So this is a really important part of this journey that you know, we, have to, we have to find some way of helping folks to have regain confidence in their body and their body signals because that's better than any other diagnostic tool, right? Uh, we Absolutely. Don't have, we don't have great diagnostic tools for this disease to begin with. And we certainly don't have great tools to determine whether or not something is working or not other than our own body signals. But they take them away from us by, by abusing us. Right. No, 100% correct. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting that we're discussing this now because I had two double whammies. I had 
the doctors and medical community instilling this distrust within myself. But I also had the hallucinatory man who on a constant basis would tell me that my death was inevitable. I was going to die. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. So when you have two outside sources that seem very real to you as someone that's neurologically ill, it's hard to fathom that your internal instinct is correct. Now, this, this, this hallucination that you're describing where this man was telling you you were going to die, do you think perhaps that was just the embodiment of, of the Lyme disease and what it was doing to you? And you sort of had this duality of, of you know, having this, this vision of a bug letting you know that, that you got sick from a, from a bug. And then, of course, you also, have, you also have this signal to you that your body is being attacked, that this that this Lyme disease and the other co-infections that you were probably battling was just sort of just being embodied in this, this, this hallucination as you're describing, which maybe it wasn't a hallucination. Maybe again, it's a body signal that you're now describing as a hallucination, but it was really a signal to you that you needed to find someone to help you to properly diagnose and treat this. Yeah. I, again, I, I I'm not sure I've had, a few experiences with a few different professionals um, now, not when I was sick, um, try and explain to me why he was so persistent in my daily life. Because usually when you have hallucinations, they vary a bit. And he was so persistent in being there almost every day. And I write about this in my book about how he kind of became a source of comfort because he was the only variable and only person that was constant throughout my entire journey with illness. And even though he was abusive verbally and physically, he was always there. So obviously it was a victim of Stockholm syndrome, but I I wanted someone who was always there for me. Not that my mom wasn't, obviously she was, but she couldn't comprehend what I was enduring because I was in my own world. Um, But in terms of what the hallucination was, whether or not it was a hallucination, I had I actually visited a shaman once because I kind of wanted closure on this part of my life. And, you know, I I thought, you know, let's just try it. And that's kind of what Lyme disease treatment is like. Let's try it and see what happens. And I remember sitting in her office five, like, I don't know if it was five minutes, but an awkward amount of time went by that I had to ask, did we start? Am I missing something? What's going on? And she She just kind of turned her head and she said, who's the man sitting next to you? Wow. And in that moment, obviously it was creeped out, but then second of all, I was like, wait, can, can everyone see him? Was it, was it not just me? Did my peers see him? Did my parents see him? Did they just not tell me? And she eventually, you know, told me a lot of things about what, you know, her thoughts about the hallucination and who he was and her explanation, which is pretty frightening. If you ask me was that he was a soul that did not pass on correctly or pass on to the other side. And he died at a very young age too. And he wanted to inhabit my body once I passed because he wanted a second chance at life, which is very eerie to think about. I don't know if this is the actual reasoning behind him and his appearance, Um, But it's something that I will never forget because that experience was one in a million. So whether or not it was real, whether or not he was someone trying to take my life so he could live again, 
the world may never know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting, Lauren, I'm feeling like I want to say I hate you to the shaman too, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm a, little, uh, a little over the top with that. So, so tell, tell us how you finally got to the, uh, to the doctor that saved your life by uh, helping you to finally get your, um, your Lyme disease diagnosed after your mom and dad so brilliantly used the tools available to them to bring you to a place where um, you could finally get a diagnosis. So it actually goes back to the mom that I knew in elementary school. My mom remembered her and emailed her asking if she knew of any doctors um, anywhere really, but in New Jersey or on the East coast that treated people with Lyme disease. And she emailed back immediately with three different names. And my mom ended up contacting two of them immediately. Both were no longer accepting patients. So all of her eggs were in one basket at that point. And the last name was Dr. Christine Gedrick. And my mom sent over probably like a three to four inch binder worth of just different labs and paperwork of my medical history to them. And within 30 minutes, she received a call from the center. And it turns out that at the time, she's no longer with them. But at the time, the manager of the Gedrick Medical Institute was the mom of another one of my good friends from elementary school. And she recognized my name on the application. At this time, it was probably about January or February 2018. And she said over the phone that their next available appointment would be August of 2018. And my parents knew that in the state that I was in, it was improbable that I would make it that long. It, the situations were dire. I was no longer eating. I was no longer really doing anything. I required my parents to help me get in and out of bed. So she ended the phone call and just asked that if you had an earlier cancellation, please let us know. And within a week, someone, I guess, had canceled and they called my mom back and said, we have a cancellation on March 14th. Can you be there? And my mom said, we booked the flight. We're going to be there. So someone was looking out for me because if there wasn't that cancellation, I don't know where I would be. So Lauren, I just want to point out, I've been listening to this the entire time and just amazed you guys. I mean, your, your story is so inspirational, but here you are today and people listening are, are hearing you and seeing how well you are. But you just told us and you just told Rich that you were months away from thinking that you wouldn't live past the next few months to see your doctor, correct? Correct. I was so um, for context, I'm 21 right now. Um, and at the time, I should have graduated in June 2018. I was pulled out of school uh, at the beginning of September 2017. I was fully convinced I was never going to graduate high school. I was fully convinced I was never going to live life without a wheelchair. I had this preconception that obviously was instilled by doctors that I was going to live like this for the rest of my life. And if that were the case, then obviously I couldn't attend classes or finish high school because I was so neurologically impaired. So I, I knew that thing, time was of the essence. And my parents knew that too, with how I wasn't consuming anything and just I, I, I looked very sickly. Like there's some photos that I keep just because of, you know, for memory, but it, it, it's hard to look back at that time because those photos that they're not me and it's sad. <laughs> and just for context, Lauren, you barely could stand or walk, right? I mean, I, I know from your questionnaire and offline discussions, you couldn't even really stand, right? Could not stand, could not, I, let me rephrase. I could see, but I almost had 
dyslexia when it came to reading, like all the letters sort of jumbled together, couldn't really understand formal sentences, um, severe nausea, migraines, vomiting spells. I remember the only thing that I would do during the day is my mom would get me up out of bed and I would just sit on the bathroom floor naked on the cold tile, just praying that one day I'd be better. That one day I'd miraculously not feel the way I was and I would be back to who I was. Lauren, did you think that you would get better? Because you mentioned that you had, it sounds like varying times where there were times you felt like you would never get out of a wheelchair, but then you had hope. So was it, was it an up and down journey where you had some hope and then you didn't have hope or was it pretty much constantly that you felt like you would never get better? I'd say it was a pretty much constant feeling that I didn't think I would get better, but there was always this subtle glimmer of hope for the future, hope of graduating high school, of going to college. It wasn't as persistent as the knowledge that I was probably not going to make it. So I'd say that overall, the pervasiveness of that feeling kind of overrided any glimmer of hope that I had. So talk to us about now your doctor's appointment. Thank God you got in earlier because of, of a connection. And so what was this doctor's appointment like when you first went to see Dr. Jedrick? I remember my parents rolling me into the building in my wheelchair and I remember sobbing hysterically. And I, I remember saying to my mom, what if she's just like the rest of them? Re- then referring to the doctors. And I remember my mom saying, if she is, we're going to do what we've been doing. We're not going to stop until you're well. And it was pretty much silent until we got to her office. And I remember sitting in the exam room with her and something about her nature just seemed different. She didn't seem like the rest of the doctors I had seen. She seemed compassionate. She seemed understanding. And even though I had barely known her and barely been introduced, I felt that I could trust her. And she started explaining, you know, everything about what she thinks I had to my parents. And she did a physical exam. And at the end of it, I remember she looked into my eyes and she said, Lauren, I know you're in there. I know you're sick right now, but I promise you, I will get you well. And at that point, like, I I don't even know if I cried, but I just remember thinking, maybe I'm not going to die after all. I'm getting chills, Lauren. I mean, this year, this is wild, your story. And thank God you found Dr. Jedrick. So you went there with the intention of saying, I believe I have Lyme disease based on your mom's research. Now, was this suspicion confirmed? So we, before we left Florida to go to Dr. Gedrick, we asked my primary care physician at the time to um, send a prescription for a Lyme disease blood test at LabCorp request. Of course, it came back negative as most people's do. So they're just like, oh, you have no, nothing to worry about. So when we went to New Jersey, I mean, presentation wise, it was kind of inevitable to not be diagnosed with Lyme because everything just matched. But eventually through um, more lab core testing and also I think IgeneX, IG which is a lab in California. Nice. Yeah, they that's when like it was like a Christmas tree, everything lit up, like positive for this, positive for that, positive for this. Um, I think all in all, I tested positive for seven strands. Seven strands of Lyme disease. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you test positive for any other co-infections like Babesia, Bartonella, those types of things? Babesia, Bartonella, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever are the only three that I recall. 
So now that you have this confirmation through hygienics and clinical through Dr. Jedrick, what was your first course of treatment? So at the time, we were only going to be in New Jersey for six weeks because that's kind of what Dr. Gedrick's office said. You know, you know, it's going to be a very intense treatment, but within six weeks, she should be at a place where you can manage. Of course, she's going to need, you know, additional treatment, but it's not going to be the same intensity of this main treatment. By the time we finished the first appointment, I was scheduled for an IV the next day. And within the coming days, I got 1000% worse, just deteriorating overnight. And my parents knew that, okay, we, this is not going to work. We're going to stay as long as she needs. We're not going to force her body to ingest and absorb all this medication within six weeks. If her body is going to revolt like this, because she will die. If she has to endure this, this is not going to end well. And so Dr. Gedrick agreed and we scaled back and that then required me to pretty much go in every day, five days a week for IVs that lasted as long as five hours because of how slow they had to push the medication through the IV. And that was about five to six months of my treatment, just every day, Monday through Friday, going in for an IV. And that wasn't even the worst of the treatment. Laura, before Um, before you go on, what were in these IVs you got for the first five to six months? Um, so they were a combination of glutathione. Um, they were a combination of like PC, which is another antioxidant. Phosphatidylcholate. I'm probably butchering it. (laughs) Yes, that exactly. Um, Myers cocktail, which is pretty standard in Lyme treatment, vitamin C. Um, and then along with some other ones of hers that I don't think I'm like allowed to say. So I I don't, cause I don't know, obviously. Um, but it was just, were there any IV antibiotics? I'm sorry to interrupt. Were there any antibiotics being infused through the IV? I don't know. I think potentially, but I wasn't aware of it. So now once you scaled back though, before you go on with the, the rest of your treatment, so this five to six month window, I want to focus on that, that period for now. You, you had an extreme reaction. You and your parents realized you can't go on just for a few weeks. You had to take it a little bit slower and stay there and, and give it its due course. How are you feeling when you scaled it back and you started this five to six month window? Were you still having a really bad Herx reaction to all the medication in the IVs? Yeah, yes, definitely. I was still having intense reactions. And um, I just remember each day would consisted of the same regimen. And and my life started feeling like Groundhog Day. I would go to the doctor's office, get the IV, come back, nap for three hours. My dad would make something for dinner and then I'd fall asleep Um, or try to sleep at least. I was so knocked out by the treatments. That was the only saving grace of them is that I was actually able to sleep because part of my line was insomnia and I would just never sleep. So, so now at this point you're, you're sleeping from these IVs, but was there anything else you were on on this, the first five to six months besides the IVs, any other oral medication, oral medication? Dr. Gedrick tried to get me on like a supplement regimen with glutathione along with other supplements, but my body was so sensitive that it just could not tolerate anymore. In fact, the IV doses that I had for the glutathione and perhaps antibiotics were at a pediatric level because my body was so sensitive. I couldn't tolerate anything higher. Now walk us through in this six month window, was there any point at which you realized I'm feeling a little bit better? Yes. Um, I, I would say yes. Towards the end of the six months, because that's kind of when 
I was able to stand on my own. And that sounds like nothing to the average person. But to me, I was like, oh my God, my feet work. My legs work. This is awesome. Um, but I was able to stand. And I, I, I remember with the IV pole in hand, I would try and take a few steps across the IV room and try and shuffle a little bit and shuffle to the bathroom. And by, by the end of the um, IV treatment, I was trying to use my wheelchair as a balance and try and push myself to walk. Obviously for long distances, had to use a wheelchair, but I was able to get from, you know, where I was sitting in the IV room to the bathroom, which was probably less than 20 feet away, but still it was a big improvement over what I was going through. That, that's great. So what made you decide to stop treating with these IVs after the first five to six months when you were seeing some real progress towards the end and then you decided to stop? So Dr. Gadget also diagnosed me with um, heavy metal poisoning and mold toxicity and parasites. So her laundry list of to-do started with obviously clearing the biofilms and that was what she did with the IVs. And then afterwards, or sorry, that's what she did with the mold and the heavy metals. And she wanted to then focus more on the parasites. And that's, that's when I had the antibiotic treatment and there were four different antibiotics that I rotated each week. Um, and she said that, you know, the average person usually needs one to two, I ended up needing three. So that's why I shifted. But after that regimen was done, I then went back to IVs again. So when you say, um, one to two, but you did three, do you mean three weeks? Is that what you mean? No. So sorry, I should have clarified that. So, um, the parasitic regimen was for four weeks. You had four different medications for each week. Usually people would go through two of them. So two months or sorry, one to two, I went through three. So it was three months of the four medications, one for each week. Do you know what the medications were? Do you recall what the names of them were? No, I could look them up, but I do not know them offhand. I'm sorry. That's okay. So you did that. And then you went back onto the IVs again after that. It sounds like, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So when you were on the parasite treatment, did you feel any worse, any better or the same? That was the worst part of my treatment. That was, I, you know, obviously at the time when I was getting my IV treatment, I thought that was the worst because of the perks that I was experiencing and all the side effects that I was experiencing from detoxing. But the parasitic treatment really targeted my neurological symptoms and my hallucinations grew more intense and more violent. I remember running into my parents' room at 2 a.m. just screaming that there were bugs crawling on the wall, that there were bugs infesting my bed, that they needed to come here, they needed to exterminate them and kill these bugs. And another scene that I remember is I was standing at the counter trying to get a glass of water from the sink. And I just had this weird wave of exhaustion come over me. I don't even know if it was exhaustion. And then all of a sudden my eyes kind of fluttered to the back of my head and I started to fall backwards. And my mom caught me thankfully because we had tile floor, but I just had, that was a common occurrence for me was passing out or having these very vivid hallucinations. So when you were on the parasite medication and you said it triggered all of your neurosymptoms, did Dr. Gedrick warn you that you were going to have these types of reactions to the medication and you're going to feel worse because it's actually working? What was your thought process as you were feeling worse during this time period? Yes. So she did kind of preface saying like, you know, you're probably not going to feel better immediately. You're going to experience a lot of 
detoxing, which is similar to Herx, but it is going to target your neurological region more. Um, and she, she did give a warning, which was nice. So it wasn't that I was kept in the dark about why I was feeling worse. And given that I felt worse with the IVs before, and then I felt better enough to stand my mind at that point figured that if that's how this treatment worked, that if I felt horrible in the beginning, that would mean that something would get better at the end. So I just want to clarify from my understanding here, Lauren. So the, this treatment was for just parasites, but I, I believe, correct? Correct. Yeah. And you, you mentioned heavy metals and mold as well. So did you treat heavy metals and mold afterwards? When did that come into play? I think that was, um, I think that was with the IVs along with the supplement regimen that I then started to take after the parasite treatment. Cause I, my body was a little bit stronger. Obviously I wasn't able to take the full regimen because I was still so fragile from what I was enduring, but it was, I'd say it was with the IVs and a combination of, um, supplements and, I also used what else? I think, I think I tried colonics once, but that just did not work well for me. So yeah, I think, I think it was just those three. Give us an idea of how you were feeling at the end of the parasite protocol. Were you, were you realizing any symptom improvements or were you still kind of feeling cruddy because of all the detoxing you were doing? So the first thing I noticed is he was gone. The hallucinatory man was gone. And I remember crying because I missed him and I wanted him to come back because he was my only friend at the time, because I didn't really have many friends in high school because I was sick for two and a half years. So the opportunity to have a social life is kind of hindered when you're sick and in a wheelchair. And I thought, where's my friend? Where did he go? We were having, you know, a good time. Stockholm syndrome again. But yeah, I, that was the first clear sign that I was getting better was that he was no longer there. Um, I'd say the mental clarity and acuity didn't come until a little later. So you still had the brain fog, but it sounds like your hallucinations had subsided and you were no longer seeing this man that was there pretty much for a good portion of, of your teenage years. Right. Right. I mean, what was that, what was that like for you and your family? Did you think that like, okay, I'm, I'm really going to get better now. Is that a point, a, a turning point in your, in your healing journey where you thought you were actually going to get better? You know, give us an idea of your emotions now at this point, at the end of the parasite protocol. At this point, I was starting to kind of be like myself again. I was, you know, my, my dad is known for his sense of humor and I, I didn't really laugh when I was sick because I just couldn't process what he was saying. And I remember my dad being so happy because I was laughing at his jokes And my dad took it as a sign that I was going to get better because I was laughing and I was smiling. And at that point, just the improvement I made being able to, you know, at walk 20 feet or walk down the hall with my wheelchair support and not have the hallucinatory man or, um, any visual disturbances in my eyes or, uh, physical disturbances such as like bugs crawling down the walls, et cetera. That was such a milestone for me that even if, at the time, obviously, even if that was the extent of what the treatment could do for me, I was over the moon. I mean, that was a thousand percent better than where I was seven months ago to compare to where I, I stood then. Um, I still had a lot of hesitation when it came to returning to school because I felt as if I entered a coma and woke up. There was so much that I missed, so much that I didn't understand. Uh, so much of my memory gone from this experience that I didn't really know who I was. 
So that I was concerned about, but I was very happy. I do remember it being a time of, of happiness. So in the beginning, when you were doing the IVs, Lauren, that was, I'm assuming for a lot of that treatment is for the Lyme disease, correct? It was for, to address the Lyme before you did parasites? Yes. Yeah. So do you believe that the improvements you were seeing now at the end of the parasite treatment were a result of a combination of the Lyme treatments and the parasitic treatments? Or do you think that really the parasites were the root cause of your neurological symptoms and your hallucinations? I think it was a combination of both because as I've learned more about Lyme, I know that certain strands are responsible for different neurological presentations. So I do think that they were working in tandem to wreak havoc on my brain. I think that the parasites also were active in other areas besides my brain because I did experience other symptoms. So I, I don't think it was necessarily one or the other. I do think it was, I do think it was both. And I think that the success of the IVs and the parasitic regimen were fundamental in healing my neurological symptoms that were ultimately, I'd say, from Lyme. So I want to clarify, Lauren, because a lot of people that come on this podcast talk about parasites. And when, they, when they speak about parasites, they're referring to GI parasites or intestinal parasites. But when you're saying parasites, I think you're, you're primarily referring to parasites in your brain, more microscopic parasites, not intestinal parasites, correct? Uh, yes, um, I did have both. I am not a scientist, uh, not pre-med, so I can't explain this, but I do know that there are some parasites that are able to uh, pass the blood brain barrier and enter the brain. So that's what I was told by Dr. Gedrick. And that's kind of what my dad researched as well, because my dad, before the first appointment, he read Dr. Horowitz's book, How Do I Get Better? And that's what he learned about parasites too. So I knew that based on blood work and everything else and my symptoms that I was presenting that I had uh, many different types of parasites. And I think Dr. Gedrick did explain it in more depth. I just don't recall, obviously, because I was very ill, but I did have both. But the ones that I remember most vividly were the neurologic because of the events that happened due to them. So Lauren, just to validate and expand upon what you're saying, and also confess something that Rich and I felt um, probably about a year ago, we had a DM from somebody about, about nematodes in the brain. And my reaction was, that sounds crazy. What does that have to do with Lyme disease? And again, you know, I, I was convicted. I was being a little too judgmental. And Paula, who is now, we, we, we chat regularly, she's the one who taught us about these types of parasites in the brain. And then shortly after, we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald, who is a pioneer in the Lyme community, specifically with neural Lyme and parasites. And he taught us about nematodes in the brain, and they actually harbor the Lyme bacteria. They harbor heavy metals, and then they actually protect the viruses and the bacteria and keep them and keep them safe from your immune system and from your natural defenses. So for sure, those nematodes and other parasites in your brain can make Lyme so much worse. And when you start to treat those parasites and treat the Lyme disease together is when you're going to see optimal results, which sounds like is, is exactly what you did with Dr. Gedrick. Yes. Yeah. That, that explanation does sound very familiar. And I do think that the parasites kind of provide a host for Lyme and they're able to travel to different organ systems more freely because of parasites. And, um, I did notice because this is kind of going back a little bit and backtracking, but throughout my childhood, I had a heart murmur and we could never really figure out why I always had a very low resting heart rate, but I always had issues with my heart. And now that 
obviously coming out of my experience, I know that it was from Lyme and it was probably in my myocardium or some other component that was affecting my heart. You know, they're insidious. They can travel wherever they want. So that, that does make sense. Right. So Lyme carditis is very real. In fact, I know many people who have suffered from Lyme carditis and many people I work with even. And what we've learned recently, Lauren, which is a really fun fact for this is the Lyme bacteria itself is not aggressive enough to penetrate tissue and muscle to get into your heart and your brain. It actually becomes stronger and faster when the bacteria goes into a tick first. So when a tick bites, let's say something like a mouse to, and, and that's when it picks up the Lyme, the, the Lyme bacteria. So a tick bites a mouse, it picks up the Lyme bacteria, the Lyme bacteria gets altered in the tick's midgut and it gets faster. Its little tail becomes faster. And when it gets now into the human from a tick bite, it is now able to penetrate and get into your heart, into your muscle, into your tissues, into your brain, whereas it wouldn't have been able to if it didn't go to the tick first before coming into the human. So it's kind of wild how the tick has, has allowed the Lyme bacteria to be even more harmful to human beings than it would be without the tick being the host, giving it to, to us. So there are ample studies validating and confirming exactly what you're telling us here today. So I just, you know, I think it's a really important factor. So now let's, let's talk about your, your, you're finishing with your parasite protocol. You're, you're pretty much, you have yourself back. I mean, it was so powerful. You said you felt like you entered a coma and then you came back and you're like, what happened? Right now that's where you are. You're done with your parasite treatment and you're going back to IVs. But walk us through what happens next from a treatment standpoint and what's going on in your life. Sure. So at this point, I'd say, so I started treatment in March, 2018 and I, okay. So I'm just collecting my thoughts. So I actually started physical therapy because I needed to relearn how to balance because at that point I was really only walking with my mom or my dad or an IV pole. So there wasn't a need for me to balance on my own or to walk on my own because I wasn't going anywhere. So I started physical therapy and it's really humbling having to relearn how to walk as an 18 year old girl, having to learn how to stand, having to learn how to sit up, having to learn how to crawl, to walk you kind of feel as if you've been just reincarnated into this like infant body that then has to grow up and mature immediately. It's a very weird feeling that I experienced trying to go through physical therapy. And that probably lasted about three months. And I went, I think two to three times a week, just focusing on like different core exercises, different moves for balance to help me engage and and protect myself and to learn how to walk on my own because I spent 17 months in a wheelchair. So obviously I lost a lot of muscle memory too, with Lyme and everything that I endured that I needed to retrain those muscles. So that was another huge milestone in my treatment was physical therapy. And after that was January of, or no, sorry, February of 2019. Um, I went back to Florida for the first time. And I wanted to go see the staff and faculty at IMG. And I was medically cleared to travel by Dr. Gedrick. And it was the first time that I didn't need a wheelchair to travel. I was able to walk. Obviously, I, at this point, I couldn't carry a bag. I really couldn't carry anything heavy, but I was, excuse me, I was able to walk. And that was a huge accomplishment for me. Congratulations. I mean, this is... I'm telling you, I'm getting chills all throughout this podcast, Lauren. This is just, this is such a, a, an amazing story of, of hope for people that are really suffering, right? I mean, you were, you were 
close to dying and look where you are today. I mean, that that's beautiful. The, the, the transformation that you've made now, I do want to ask you about the physical therapy because we've had a lot of people talk about physical therapy. I've had probably all in all over five different physical therapists I've seen throughout my Lyme journey. And when you, when you go into physical therapy and you tell them that you're there because you, you have Lyme disease or you're recovering from damage due to Lyme disease, I can tell you some of the ones that I've been to and many of our guests that have been on this podcast before you have told us the physical therapists kind of roll their eyes and they don't give them the attention or the care they deserve because of the controversy over Lyme. So what was that like with you and your physical therapist and, and understanding that the root cause of all this was tick-borne illness and Lyme disease? Did that have an impact on your treatment in physical therapy? Yeah, uh, well, no. Um, and the reason is, is that because the medical trauma I endured and my trust in Dr. Gedrick, I did not see anyone in the medical field unless they were approved by Dr. Gedrick, because if they were approved by Dr. Gedrick, they were a good person. That's what my brain thought. And I still think it's true. I hold by it. Um, and so I, I asked her my, well, my mom asked her, do you have any recommendations for a physical therapist? And she did. And the physical therapist that I worked with was very open. Um, obviously didn't really know the full story of Lyme, but she had helped other patients from Dr. Gedrick and through that kind of understood the severity of the disease and what it can do to people. And she was always very encouraging. I never had a point in time where she was dismissive, which was a godsend because I had experienced so much of that in the past. So I'm very lucky in that regard, but ultimately, no, it was a very positive experience for me. I want to step back again. So I, I know you, you, you lived in New Jersey, then you went to Florida and then you came back to, I think, New Jersey to treat, correct? Am I, am I, am I accurate with that so far? Correct. Yes. Okay. And yes. <laughs> and you were staying in a hotel, right? When you were treating? Yes. Okay. So how long were you up in New Jersey for Dr. Gedrick treating before you went down to Florida and you were able to walk on your own, which is amazing to, to the, you know, to, to for your flight and to travel back down to, to, to Florida. It was about 19 months, 19 months. And now at this point, you were, were you done treating? Where were you at with your treatment standpoint? You know, were you still doing IVs? Were you doing supplements? Where were you with that? So I was still doing supplements. I, to this day, I still have a supplement regimen that I take every day. Um, but I went back down to Florida because I wanted, well, I was, I, I should backtrack a little bit. Um, once I was going through physical therapy, I kind of had the mental clarity that I thought was needed to finish high school. So I, was able to homeschool virtually, um, with Florida virtual school, which IMG was very grateful to let me use. And, um, I was still able to graduate from IMG, which is also something I'm very thankful for. So I I started the second semester of my high school experience, which is all I had left to, to complete. And in February, I went down to Florida because I had AP exams in April and May. And, I wasn't done with treatment. I felt a thousand percent better than where I was. Obviously I was able to walk to the gate, which is a huge accomplishment for me, but I wasn't where I wanted to be. And obviously knowing the extent of Lyme and how pervasive it, pervasive it is, I'm grateful that I was able, even able to get to a point where I could recognize I want to get better than this. I know there's a point where I can get better than this. So I went to Florida knowing that I would come back to New Jersey over the summer to finish up my treatment for another three to four months. So did you finish high school virtually? Did you graduate? I did. Yeah. I 
finished my AP exams. I did really well on them. Shockingly, I was like so surprised. Um, I graduated high school. I walked across the stage and I think my parents were the loudest ones in that building because there were probably over like 1500 people there. And all I heard was my mom screaming. Uh, and it turns out that the headmaster of IMG at the time, he was diagnosed with Lyme disease too. So we bonded over that. Um, but it was, it was a moment I will never forget because for so many years, I thought this is never going to happen. I'm never going to graduate high school. I'm just, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but it, I, I never thought it was achievable for me. And that moment in June of 2019, I just, I was just so grateful. I was over the moon. And again, for context, you told us earlier that you were communicating with your mom by using hand gestures because you couldn't even speak. And now fast forward, you're, you're graduating high school, your health is significantly improved, and you're going back to Jersey now to continue on with your treatment to get even better. So welcome yeah. to now, you're, you're gradu- you graduated, <laughs> you, you go back to Jersey, you're with Dr. Gedrick, and you're continuing on with your treatment. So what was that treatment that you were continuing with? And, and walk us through the next steps there. So it was a continuation of the IV treatment that I went to in the beginning, but it was a little um, more, not intense, but I guess it was intense in terms of the dosage because my body could able, was able to withstand the effects of the adult dose. It was more of that. And it was kind of an ever changing supplement regimen, depending on what my blood work showed. I had blood work done pretty much every month because of, you know, again, how fragile I was. Um, so it, it mainly consisted of just different IVs, changing the dosage, changing the, the variation between the supplements that I had. Um, and during those months, my, you know, <laughs> my parents were like, you're taking a gap year. It wasn't a, it, it wasn't a question. It was like a command. You are taking a gap year. And I was like, uh, do I have to, I, I really want to go back to school. And they're like, nope, you're taking a gap year. So now walk us through, when, when you say IV, were you going there and getting an IV put in every day through, through your vein in your arm? Or were you actually, did you have a pick line put in or a port put in? And how were the IVs actually administered for you? So I was thinking about getting a pick line, but I had so much medical trauma in the beginning that I just had no interest. Um, I'd rather be poked every day than have to go under some sort of procedure like that. So I decided to not do that. The IVs towards the end of treatment, the three to four months that I'm speaking about, it wasn't every day, like the beginning of my treatment because it wasn't necessary. I'd say it was twice a week at maximum uh, with the IVs along with electric stim. And there was also ozone therapy that I used in conjunction with the IVs. And the IVs consist of the same medications that I spoke about earlier. So when you introduced ozone, when you went back to Jersey, did that, was, was there anything noteworthy there? Did you feel, did you herx worse than you ever had before? Did you feel any better? Do you think it was worthwhile? Ozone is a really, I think, important topic because many people consider getting ozone, but don't want to waste their time or money with it if they don't feel it's going to be helpful for them. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. So I had it, I had um, nasal ozone and then I had blood ozone. Quite frankly, blood ozone didn't really do anything for me. I didn't notice any significant difference between blood ozone, but nasal ozone, I did. I felt that I had taken like a gram of cocaine. Like I had nonstop energy. I was able to read a book, like a 300 page book and maybe an afternoon, just absolutely incredible things. Something as superhuman, I thought. 
could accomplish because at the time I didn't have the wherewithal or capability to do. Uh, so I would recommend nasal ozone, but again, blood ozone is kind of a hit or miss. I know some people that have huge success with it and they swear by it, but for me personally, it didn't really do anything. With the nasal ozone, Lauren, is that, is that, is it just like, um, a nasal spray? Is it something that they, they, they put, um, ozone up into your nose? Like how does that work to get the ozone administered through the nose? Yeah, I would say it's, it's, it resembles a nose spray. Um, you hold one nostril down and then they insert the spray in one nostril. You kind of hold your breath for 15 seconds. Then you release your, you know, you release, you breathe normally. Then you do it again for the other nostril, hold your breath for 15 seconds and then let it go. Um, it, it's very simple, non-invasive, really. The only thing that I noticed afterwards is that you kind of just smell that everything smells like a swimming pool because it has this effect to make everything smell like chlorine, which is interesting. But afterwards, again, that mental acuity and that sharpness, I, I didn't even think that was possible for me. I, I didn't even know that I had those strengths within me. And to see that come from some sort of nasal spray after all this treatment, I was just amazed. You think that's because that the, the nasal spray and the ozone went in right up into your brain and it was now killing other things, viruses, whatever else it may be that were just persisting there. And that's why it was so effective. Yeah, I'm sure. I think, um, you know, detoxing through like sneezing is one of the best ways to, to detox. And I think that since it was closer to the, the actual target of where my symptoms resided, that it was probably targeting the rest or the remaining scraps of everything that I was going through. And it was just kind of clearing out the remnants. And that's why I was able to kind of achieve these effects, which on some days I have, some days I don't. It's a hit or miss. How many, how many nasal ozone sprays or infusions, whatever you want to call them, how many did you get? I'd say it was standard twice a week along with the IVs. I didn't go in just for the nasal ozone because it was a less than five minute type of procedure or not procedure, but administer, uh, administering the nasal ozone. Um, and then after the three to four months were over and I was still in New Jersey for my gap year, I came in as needed because I did notice a significant difference with my mental sharpness and Dr. Gedrick was okay with that. So I want to just go back to the physical therapy. You mentioned that the physical therapy made you well enough and cognitively well enough to go back down to Florida and finish school. Do you think that the physical therapy helped you with your cognitive abilities because of blood flow being a problem and being so, you know, in a wheelchair, you, your blood flow wasn't, wasn't probably optimal. And as you're doing physical therapy, you're getting things moving, you're strengthening your muscles and you're improving blood flow to all of your key organs, like your brain, which allowed you to then have more cognitive abilities than you did before. Do you think that that's, I'm trying to understand why physical therapy helped you with your, with your brain fog? I think that's a very, um, solid explanation. I hadn't considered that, but I think that when you're sedentary for such a long time, 18 months, in my case, that, you know, your blood does and can pool. And so you're not getting the same circulation of oxygenated blood and your hemoglobin levels are probably a little bit different than someone who exercises regularly. So I think that physical therapy could have definitely contributed to my mental clarity later on. I, I really hadn't thought about that until now. 
So I just want to ask, so we know physical therapy helped you with the brain fog. We know that the parasite protocol was really helpful and got rid of your, your hallucinations. And obviously all the IVs were, were extremely important to treat Lyme and everything else as well, the heavy metals and the mold. But was there anything you did specifically that had a very quick response where you had like that aha moment that, okay, this treatment allowed me to have this improvement with my symptoms? No, I don't. <laughs> For me, there wasn't. Obviously, I think that's what everyone in Lyme and the Lyme community looks for is a quick fix or something that will alleviate their symptoms. And they, you know, the miracle pill or the miracle drug, oh, take this and you'll feel fine. I wish that was the case because I think that if someone, you know, if someone creates that, they will be a millionaire. Um, but for me, no, it's a combination of a multitude of things, supplements, IVs, ozone therapy, physical therapy, exercising now, nowadays, not, not then, obviously. Um, there, there, there isn't just one thing and there isn't something that I instantaneously knew caused a change that I noticeably saw within myself. You just said then versus now, but then wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, I think we're almost into 2019 in, in your journey, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. again, look how far you've come since 2019 in the last, you know, two, a little over two years. So now you let's, let's start, go back to Jersey. So you're in Jersey, you're finishing up your IVs, you're doing the ozone. At what point does that change? Do you stop? Do you make a change? What are the next steps from there? I ended up stopping the IVs around December of 2019. Um, just because Dr. Edrick, after reviewing all my blood work and seeing where I was physically, didn't really think it was necessary unless I needed it because I felt that I was feeling a certain symptom that I wanted to combat like lethargy or brain fog. So I just stuck to the supplement regimen and tried to start exercising a bit because that's something that I really love to do is exercising. And, uh, you know, when you go through an experience where you almost die, you then have this perspective and I guess vision of the world that, oh my God, you can die at any moment. We have to do everything right now. Within two hours, you know, we could be hit by a train. You never know. And I sort of had this attitude that I had to do everything then and there. And that's when I started to make a few mistakes. I wouldn't call them careless because I was cognitively aware of what I was doing, but I decided to try CrossFit because I thought it looked cool. I thought it would be fun. I wanted to get back into shape. You tried CrossFit and you just started walking again. I was, well, yeah, I was, I was walking and I was doing physical therapy. It was, it was not a good idea. It was, it was really not a good. And my mom was like, why are you doing this? This is like a terrible idea. Uh, she was not a supporter of that. Um, but, but the physical therapist actually that I worked with, she, her office was in a CrossFit. So I, I saw all these people doing these exercises while I was learning how to walk. I'm like, wow, these seem like really cool people, really strong, very confident. And I wanted that for myself. And so I thought that CrossFit was the only avenue that I could pursue that would give that to me. And obviously that's not the case. And I didn't hurt myself, thank God, but I just noticed a lot of symptoms starting to come back, joint pain, muscle pain, fatigue, lethargy, uh, just not feeling well. And I, I realized immediately once I experienced those symptoms that I needed to stop. I think this is a really important tip you just gave us, Lauren, because Movement and exercise is really important to recover from Lyme disease. And in fact, many leading doctors feel that if you don't move and you don't exercise, you won't be able to fully recover to your fullest potential. But you went 
you did too much too soon and you saw a resurgence of a lot of your symptoms and you had to back off. And I think it's that balance that's so important when healing from Lyme disease and recovering. And to Richard's you know, discussion with you earlier, you're identifying your body's signals. Your body was telling you, hey, this is too much too soon and you're going to get sick again. And you listened to your body, thank God. You pulled back and you did more moderate exercise, but you didn't stop altogether. And I think that's the most important thing. You didn't stop. You pulled back and you continued pushing forward to an extent of what your body would allow you to without having an extreme reaction. So walk us through that. So did you, what, what, once you had these responses, did you continue on physical therapy and just go slower? How did you proceed at that point? So I stopped with physical therapy because it wasn't an issue of walking or balance. It was more, this is triggering Lyme symptoms. I need to stop before it gets worse. So I halted any kind of exercise for about a month and a half or so, because I just wanted to make sure that I didn't cause a flare and that everything was stable. And in that time I went back for a few IVs and just made sure that I was okay because I knew everything that I had gone through and I didn't want to have a resurgence of everything that I endured. So there wasn't any mention of exercise. Then after about a month and a half, I realized that I wanted to start being active again. And at that point, my mom, along with, um, I think a friend of my mom's, I'm, I don't recall, but they recommended bar, which is a combination of ballet and Pilates. And I started trying it and I just, I loved it. I thought it was great. And it was all very, the thing that I backtracking again, I'm sorry, but the thing that I loved most about bar what is that it was all about core strength and using your, your own body weight. There wasn't any additional weight or strain placed on your joints or muscles. It was all about you and your control of your muscle of control of your joints. So there wasn't any additional stress that I was putting on myself, which would then cause an increase in joint pain or any kind of other symptoms. So I, I did bar for, for a while until I um, went to college and that was my main source of exercise. So now when you finished the IVs, you mentioned it was around the December of 2019, you left New Jersey and went back to Florida, went home, right? 2019. I think you said it was December of 2019. You finished the IVs. I think you said, right? Yes. Yeah. So now you're home and walk us through what happens next. Cause as we know, you're now in college. So what, what were those steps between now you graduated high school, you finished every treatment in Jersey. It's almost, it's almost 2020 and you're applying for colleges. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah. I was applying for colleges and trying to finish publishing a book. So it was, it was a busy fall fall for me, uh, the fall of 2019. Yes. Um, I ended up publishing my book on December 6th. So that was a huge accomplishment for me. And I was very happy that day. And I applied to 10 colleges and I spent so much time on my applications. Um, and, and that was a, that was another thing that I forgot to mention earlier, but another one of my dreams was going to college. I had always wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to graduate school. I want to get a PhD. That's just something that I've wanted since I was 11 or 12. I don't know why, but it's just something that I've always wanted. And so being able to have the opportunity to sit down and write a college application, I was just, just thrilled, just beyond the, you know, beyond happy that I had the chance to actually apply because I didn't even consider it a possibility for me because of my journey that I would even get to a point where I would feel mentally, physically, emotionally ready to embark on the experience that is college. So I applied to 
several different colleges. I applied early action to Stanford, my dream school, and of course got rejected. But that same day I published my book, so it's okay. <laughs> there's there's a happy ending to everything. And um, I ended up applying to the University of Chicago early decision two, which means that the acceptance, if you got in, which I never thought I would get in, uh, would be released in February. And I told, uh, I think I told you this earlier, the story, but my parents wanted to keep me on the East Coast because they didn't want me to be too far from home. They wanted me on the same time zone. If something were to happen, if I were to relapse or if I needed help and my mom needed to get on a flight or my dad even, they wanted to know that, you know, I was in, within, you know, a reasonable distance away from home, not so far. Clearly that didn't work out because I applied to Stanford. So, you know, things change. But I remember that was like the only school that my mom was like, all right, fine, you can apply because we all kind of knew like, what are your chances, you know? So then behind their back, I applied to the University of Chicago, early decision. And there was just something about the school that I just fell in love with. And I'd never been to Chicago, never been to the Midwest, but I was like, you know what, this is, you know, this could be a great experience if I get in, if I don't, it's okay. I tried my best. This is still a great experience just applying to college. So I'm happy either way. I remember applying to UChicago and uh, not telling my parents and I used a friend's credit card to pay for the application fee, obviously paying them back. And I had other college interviews in the beginning of January, 2020. And in February, 2020, I heard on a Monday that I would hear back that Friday, the entire week silent with my family, did not mention anything because obviously, again, I'm like, what are the chances? I'm not going to get in. Their acceptance rates, what, less than 10%, 6%, who gets into U Chicago, right? No one gets into U Chicago. So then February, February 14th comes around and I'm on some kind of message board that's for college acceptances and people are posting, I got accepted, I got rejected, I got waitlisted. And obviously that just intensifies your anxiety surrounding the situation. And so I finally get the email and, you know, I'm anticipating, you know, we're sorry to inform you that. And it's like, all right, well, you know, I tried. And so I open the email and I click on, click on the link. And I just sit there for five minutes staring at my phone screen because the first word says, congratulations. And I remember staring at my phone thinking, that doesn't say we regret to inform you. That's not how you spell regret to inform you. And so I think it just took me a few minutes to process that I had been through all that I went through. I had written a book. I had gone through all the treatment, physical therapy, IVs, antibiotics, gotten to a point where I was stable enough to write a college application, nonetheless, to a school like the University of Chicago. And they were able to see all that in my application and still accept me. And at that point, I just remember screaming. I'm like, mom, dad, I got into your Chicago. This is crazy. And my mom's like, you didn't apply to your Chicago. I'm like, well, surprise, I did. Um, it was a really happy moment. My mom started crying. She cries at everything, but it was happy tears, obviously. Um, and it was, a really, it was a really great moment for me because with my backstory and with my educational history, I didn't think that any of these schools would really be accepting of me because of everything that I went through. It wasn't a standard resume or um, CV that I had compared to other high schoolers because of my illness. And I didn't take the same classes. I didn't do, I didn't have any extracurriculars. In fact, someone joked that I should make one of my extracurriculars on my common app that I was a professional patient and that I knew how to uh, 
take blood and I knew how to, uh, you know, put on a tourniquet and different things, which I thought would be funny, but I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to do that, but it was, it was, it was a really great moment in my life. So many people, Lauren, in the Lyme community say, I'm never going to be able to do what I want to do because of my Lyme experience. And you're proving them wrong. I mean, after everything you went through, you never dreamed of getting into the top school in the Midwest. And you did, right? I mean, and, and you know, you literally went from a wheelchair to now being admitted into the University of Chicago and being able to pursue your, your college career, which is, which is amazing. So before we go on with that and talk about how that impacted your health, Let's talk about your book. So what was the name of your book? What was it about? And give us a little more information about that. Yeah, so it's called Tickled Imagination, play on words. I love play on words. Um, and it's basically uh, the story of, of me and what happened and my illness. I've always loved to journal. I've journaled since I was the age of nine. And when I was sick, obviously, I didn't have the capacity to write. So I started audio recording on my phone using the voice recording app and most of the recordings that I had from that time I didn't know but were just kind of word vomit word vomit I guess for lack of a better word there was no cohesiveness to what I was saying and some of them I just don't even understand I, I don't even know what I was trying to get across and I feel badly for my parents because I'm sure they were trying to communicate with me and couldn't understand so at the end of all my treatment and everything I had about 156 audio clips and it was about 13 hours of me talking. And I just remember sitting in the patient room one day getting an IV. It was, you know, after, after all the IVs that were necessary, it was something I think during CrossFit or I don't even know the timeline confuses me. Sometimes I was sitting in the patient room and I was just thinking like, this could be a survival guide for other people. Like I didn't have someone who was like me and during the same experience that I went through. And if I had someone like me, maybe I can help another person like me know that they're not alone. And I had always loved to write and I always wanted to publish a book. And I thought, why not now? Now's a better time than never. So I just started transcribing all my audio recordings and creating a general outline and, um, a flow for, for what I wanted to share. And it, it, it chronicles everything from the beginning of the, the first event of seeing him all the way up to my high school graduation. Um, because it, the audio clips sort of ended and my journaling sort of ended around the time of my high school graduation. And I didn't have time after high school because I was, you know, flung right into college applications. So I, I, I detail pretty much everything. Uh, I wrote the book when I was 17. I'm now 21. And I'm an English minor and I'm reading the book again for fun. And there's so many things I'm like, oh my God, no, why did you write it this way? Like I need to tweak it. But you know, it's, it's something that I'm so proud of because I was 17 and I, I published this about my story. It's me. It's who I am. It's my heart. It's my soul. It's, it's Lauren Kingsley. And um, I ended up self-publishing it on Amazon, the cover. I ended up having a professional photographer take my photo. And I had this idea that I wanted to write the title on my forehead because tickled imagination is something that a doctor actually once said to me in New York, Oh, sweetie, you have a tickled imagination. If you think you have all those symptoms and the phrase just kind of stuck with me, obviously I didn't think of the correlation to Lyme disease, but then when I was diagnosed, I'm like, that's perfect. Play on words, tick. I was so excited. And we took the photo. I had the title on my forehead and we 
had a tick for the dot on the eye because I thought, why not? It's my book. And I wanted it to be on my forehead also because I'm not afraid of that title. Like, I'm not afraid to have that as me. Like, yes, I did have a tickled imagination by, you know, someone who doesn't have experience with Lyme. But at the same point in time, like, I'm proud of it. It's part of who I am. It's made me who I am today. And I wanted to be bold and have it on my forehead, kind of like a label, like, this is me, this is who I am. Um, And then I had someone else help me with the the Photoshop and they tinted my eyes. My eyes are blue, but they tinted them kind of lime green because I thought it would be cool to have green eyes. (laughs) And that's kind of how my book came together. And uh, several different people that I met through treatment, they were super excited about it. And I sent them like a, a copy before it actually went live on Amazon just to get their initial remarks and thoughts about the book. And they were so kind and considerate to write such positive things about it and very heartfelt uh, remarks about my book. And I really appreciate all that those, those people did, did for me personally and otherwise. Um, but it, it was a great experience. It was a learning experience. I learned so much from, from self-publishing. I mean, that's another podcast episode in itself, but it was something that I will always be proud of. And it's a talking point that I always try to squeeze in somehow. Like, did you know, like, you know, are you interested in reading? Can I interest you in this book? You know? Um, But yeah, it's, it was a great experience. So Lauren, we're going to drop the link to your book in the show notes. So anybody listening can just click on that link and access the Amazon profile for them to buy your book, to take a look at it and and learn from you. Because I think there's so many lessons that are beyond the unfortunate timeframe we have here on the podcast that they can gain from reading your book in more detail. So but moving on, I do want to now. I'm getting a little anxious because you're you're going to Chicago, you're leaving Flo- your home your home state of Florida, you're getting even further away from Jer- from New Jersey, and you're going to school, which can be stressful and can cause some symptom flare up. So, what do you do preventatively? You're looking for a doctor in Chicago to help you ha- as a fallback in case you need that doctor. What kind of steps are you taking to transition from Florida to Chicago? There were a lot of different steps that. I took to prepare. I had blood work done, obviously, just to see where my levels were in Florida because ticks are prevalent in Florida. It's just not, you know, common knowledge in Florida like it is in the North Northeast and the tick belt. And then we did start looking for integrated physicians and other doctors that were Lyme literate in the Chicago land area. And that's how we found Dr. Casey Kelly, who was on this podcast. And she worked in um, tandem with Dr. Gedrick and just has always been there for me. If I need an IV or if I need extra supplements, or if I, you know, notice something uh, spiking or occurring that seems abnormal, she's always there for me. And she's maybe 25 minutes from you, Chicago. So it worked out perfectly. So let's talk about that transfer of care, because you did mention that you were on a lot of IVs and there's a lot of, a lot of specialization and probably a lot of detail that went into your, your protocol in Jersey. So was there a collaboration between Dr. Gedrick and Dr. Casey to figure out what you were on, what now you'd be doing with Dr. Kelly, uh, Casey Kelly in Chicago? I believe so. Yes. But I think also part of it was just kind of my case history and also all the documentation and blood work that I had. A lot of the IVs I knew by name because I had been taking them so often that I would just ask the nurses, what is this? What am I taking? What am I, you know, what is this IV in terms of the rest of my treatment. Is it Myers? Is it vitamin C? Is it phospholipocholine? Is it glutathione? And through those names, I was able to kind of narrow down my treatment with Dr. Kelly. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Dr. Gedrick and Dr. Kelly had a chance to speak, but through 
Dr. Kelly's awareness and knowledge of Dr. Gedrick's work, she was able to kind of whittle down and concisely like pinpoint like kind of a regimen for me that I could follow in Chicago if need be. So now we're getting close to the present date. I mean, you're, you're in college now, right? And you're, you're in Chicago and you're doing well. Walk us through that transition. So what was it like to now go into full-time student mode while being a little anxious about, you know, your health and, and having a relapse and also having a new doctor who you have to get familiar with and now become comfortable with? It was a ginormous transition. <laughs> I mean, um, I started my first quarter of college in September, 2020. So we're obviously in a worldwide pandemic. A lot of things are shut down. I did not have most of my classes in person. So that's already one thing that I'm having to deal with. I'm also having to deal with the fact that I haven't been in a physical classroom since 2016. So four years have gone by since being in a physical classroom with other people. And for me, even being on Zoom with other kids in the Zoom room was such a like terrifying experience for me because I hadn't had that interaction before. And I didn't really know how to interact socially, not because I didn't have the capacity to, but because I didn't have the opportunity to with my treatment and being sick with Lyme. I ended up moving off campus because of all my you know, illnesses and everything. I, it was just better for me. And I wanted to be able to have control over my environment because mold makes me very sick. And I was very wary of staying in a dorm and you Chicago's buildings are beautiful, but I was just, you know, scared of being in a situation where something uh, terrible can happen to my health. So I was fortunate enough to be granted to live off campus and living in an apartment on my own with a roommate. It was just such a crazy experience. I mean, from being under my parents' care 24 seven to now living on my own, it was a complete 360 or not 360, 180. Uh, because I, I had no experience in it, but, um, I just tried to do the best that I could. And I just knew that I loved to learn and I loved going to school and that I would figure it out. And I knew that the coursework was going to be daunting. I knew it was in a city that I had no knowledge of, but if I had gotten through my illness, I could get through this. And that's kind of the mantra I held on to throughout the first quarter. So Lauren, I want to expand upon that a little bit because a lot of, a lot of people who we've talked to, Rich and I, and also people that we've interviewed on this podcast have told us either they're, they're parents of children that are now becoming independent or they're, they're young adults becoming independent themselves. And many of them, unfortunately, have problems with their health when they take that step and leave the care of their parents and go and become independent like you did and now be on their own. So what specific steps can you give our listeners that have helped you not have a relapse? I mean, are you avoiding alcohol? Are you, are you focusing on your sleep? Are you avoiding partying? Because a lot of those things are the common college experience. But I know in many cases, we have to try to avoid those things and not have a negative impact on our immune system and our health and have a setback. So what specific advice can you give people that are listening that has helped you not get sick, even though you went through this major change from being taken care of by your parents to now being completely independent and on your own? That's yeah, that's a great question. I or statement, I should say that um, the first thing that helped me tremendously is my psychologist, who I still see to this day, um, her support emotionally, mentally, otherwise, is kind of what instilled the confidence in me that I kn- like that I knew I could do it, that I could be successful in college, even after everything that I endured. And without her support, I, I don't know where I would be. So I just want to say that, that 
if you have a support team around you, a good psychologist or even a, a parent or a friend, that's crucial. The other thing that I will say is, um, ironically enough, while going through Lyme, I did find out that I was allergic to alcohol, like very severely. Um, it's just one of those rare allergies that people can have through going through chronic illness. And even in high concentrations, I have respiratory issues where it's very hard for me to breathe. So I knew going to college, I would have to stay away from partying. And personally, that's just not who I am. I've never been a party person. So it wasn't difficult for me, but I know as a young person going to college for the first time, partying and going out with friends, that's something they look forward to. And for me, I just knew that I had to do whatever I could to protect myself. And that meant uh, straying away from social situations that could put me in the position where I would have the possibility of relapsing or having certain symptoms. So I, I didn't, you know, I, I don't go to parties. I, I don't go to a lot of social events. I work at a lab because that's something I'm very interested in. And I found other people like me who are interested in psychological research. Um, and you make friends in your classes. I, I think that isn't said a lot, but you know, you don't have to make friends just by partying or going out. You can still make friends in classes and study groups. It's, it's not all about, you know, the social life of, of drinking of you know, staying out until 2am. I'm usually asleep by 11. So that's, that's just not my speed. I'd say the other thing I'd recommend is just getting a lot of sleep. Sleep is so important. I know a lot of college kids are, um, they have very late schedules. They don't go to sleep until two or 3am. And I understand that as someone who is in college myself, but you need to prioritize sleep. Sleep is everything. And yes, your midterm may be tomorrow. And yes, you may have an assignment due in two days. It's worth 30% of your grade. But in the grand scheme of things, nothing is more important than your health. And if you don't have your health, you have nothing. So 30% of your grade means nothing. So I, that's how I try and frame things because college students especially get themselves so wrapped up in this bubble that I have to do well. I have to do well. If I don't do well, you know, let, let me just sacrifice a few nights of sleep. It'll be fine. Like I'll catch up on it. But the reality is you never catch up on sleep. So that's something that's very important. The last thing I'll say is that you should really be careful of your diet. In college, kids tend to just eat whatever they want because why not? I mean, you can eat whatever you want when you want. And um, as someone who's grown up with food allergies, I've known that I have to be very careful with what I eat in order to feel well. And so the last thing that I, I would recommend is just being very careful what you're fueling your body with, not ingesting a lot of caffeine because that can trigger a lot of symptoms in people that I know, not ingesting a lot of sugar, just being very careful of the sources of your food too. And making sure you're trying to eat as cleanly as possible. Obviously having a cheat day once in a while or once a week is fine and it's great for the soul. But um, yeah, I'd say food is a major component that isn't talked about enough. So Lauren, you, you have your life back, right? And what I find very interesting about your story is although you have your life back, you're still taking steps to keep yourself healthy. And I think a mistake many of us make is when we start to make improvements, we start to get a little lax and we say, okay, I'll start eating those foods. I'll start staying up late. I'll start doing this. And then we have setbacks. So what, what drives you and what has motivated you to continue on with this really uber healthy lifestyle, despite being so healthy now? I think part of it is just, you know, try, trial and error, error, but also fa failure. Um, I had <laughs> my first quarter of college. I had the only in-person class the entire year and it was an 8 a.m. calculus class which I regret taking 8 a.m. class in college. To anyone that's going to college, do not take an 8 a.m. class. You will regret it. Um, and I just remember so many nights beforehand just not being able to fall asleep until 1 or 2 a.m. and then having to get up for this class at 8 a.m. And by the end of the quarter, 
I was exhausted. I had brain fog. I had high anxiety. I was starting to notice that I was getting very paranoid again. I was going into winter. So I knew the cold was going to affect my joints, but I felt frozen. Like I would wake up and feel that I was unable to move my joints. And I just knew in that instant, okay, like you, you're doing something wrong. And so I examined my schedule, I examined everything that I was eating, everything that I was doing. And I realized I can't sustain myself, my academic schedule on three to four hours of sleep. That's impossible and just unhealthy for anyone, regardless of chronic illness or not. So going into the next quarter, I made it a priority that, you know, I would get at least eight hours of sleep. For me personally, I need nine hours to function well, but, you know, I needed eight hours of sleep to make sure that I could, you know, stay on top of things and not have that relapse. Because I think subconsciously, there's just something in my brain that whenever I start experiencing those symptoms, I think of the trauma that I went through and I don't want to relive that. Like I am, I'm doing everything in my power to not have to relive that trauma. Um, and, and I think also as just a motivator, I just want to be healthy to keep talking about my story to other people, because if you're not healthy, if you don't have the cognitive abilities that I didn't have, and a lot of people don't have when they're going through Lyme, they can't cohesively express themselves and eloquently say what happened to them. And that's kind of when we get the doctors that are saying, oh, it's in your head because they can't understand you. But when you're you know, clear-minded and able to talk about what happened, I think that's just so important. And so I think part of it too, is I never want to lose my voice. And so I'm just very cautious with what I do. So it's really interesting. So one of the motivators of you staying healthy and continuing to live this uber healthy lifestyle is you want to be able to help other people and continue to advocate in the community that you were failed in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So now walk us through. So it sounds like you've been in Chicago for a little over a year, which brings us to the present date and, and in school there and doing very well, clearly. Now, I want to learn more about Dr. Casey Kelly, because Rich and I are huge fans of her. She's the top Lyme leader doctor we recommend to essentially everybody on social media and, and in person. And, you know, what was that like to transition with her? You know, what was that experience like going to Dr. Casey Kelly after having this one doctor who you found, who you found who finally saved your life? She saved your life. And now you had to move away from her. So, you know, was that a, was that a hard adjustment? And and how did you lean on Dr. Kelly when you needed to, when you were having these stressors at college? At first I was very cautious because I, I didn't know her and Dr. Gedrick didn't know her, um, but Dr. Kelly knew Dr. Gedrick. So she wasn't Dr. Gedrick recommended. So I was starting to freak out a bit like, oh my gosh, is this going to be, you know, similar to a past experience? And I had grown confidence over the year and just being healthy and knowing that, you know what, if she doesn't respect or understand where I came from in my journey, like we will find someone else. Like it's, it's okay. Um, but our first video session went terrific. She was really understanding. She was very impressed with everything that I did. And to this day, like, I think it's just because I just did everything that I could to survive. I don't give as much credit as I should to my accomplishments. And so the entire time she was just like, you should be so proud of yourself. And I think hearing that from such a renowned physician that I should be proud of myself was just so inspiring for me, I guess, to, to hear that from someone. I mean, Dr. Gedrick said that as well, but to hear it from another physician that Dr. Gedrick didn't recommend was just, it was very heartwarming to me. Um, and she was very open to my treatment and discussing it. And during the winter quarter of my first year, I started to notice a lot of anxiety and, and seeing, not seeing the hallucination, but seeing the face of the hallucination pop up. And I think it was stress-related and changing environments and 
Uh, Chicago winters are not like the Northeast winter, <laughs> news alert for anyone, uh, and, and having to deal with that along with the symptoms of a chronic illness like joint pain, it was just a lot for me to try and do on my own. And I, I noticed a lot of symptoms coming back. And that's when I went to, to get IVs, not to mention the pandemic going on and raging. So I wanted to protect myself. So I went back and had several different IVs and it was, it was a great experience. And I still, I think I have an appointment with her next Friday, actually, to talk about this quarter. But she's been extremely helpful with, with college and everything. She's always there when I need her. And I haven't been there for treatment in a little bit just because, knock on wood, I've been stable and healthy. I haven't needed her. But she, she, she is also a godsend. We agree. And, and Rich and I have interviewed almost 250 people on this podcast that suffer from chronic Lyme disease. And we want to confidently tell you and very strongly tell you, you should be proud of yourself. There's no doubt about that. You are where you are today because of your determination and your perseverance. And the fact that you're still doing so well now that you're independent is proof positive that you're the reason you are where you are today. So just don't forget that, that you should really be proud of yourself and where you are and how sick you were and, and how strong you have had to have been to get to where you are today. So just don't, don't lose sight of that. And the final question I do want to ask you before Rich picks up again is looking back at your whole journey. If, if you had to give one tip to somebody who you ran into in the grocery store and they said to you, oh my goodness, I'm suffering from chronic Lyme disease too. What would that one piece of advice you'd give to that person? What would that be? Oh my gosh. You're limiting me to one piece of advice. That's tough. Um, Wow. One piece of advice. There's so much. Well, hmm. obviously uh, the first thing I'd say is I, I try to help the person find a Lyme literate doctor. I mean, it really starts with your physician. If you don't have the right physician, you're not going to get well. It's that simple. If you don't have someone who understands the complexity of chronic Lyme and the complexity of parasites and toxic metals and mold poisoning, you're not going to get well. They need to be well-versed in that. I think also too, is just, unfortunately just doing a lot of reading, like Google is helpful in Lyme disease. And that's why there's a lot of naysayers in Lyme because you really do have to educate yourself on the subject. Um, and if you educate yourself, I, I feel like knowledge is power. And sometimes if you have that knowledge, you can harness some of that information and, and reduce the, the paranoia or anxiety that you might face. But the first thing that I would do is help that person find a Lyme literate physician and get them tested, have blood work done, and then start from square one in terms of what's needed for treatment to make sure that they curtail any, any major symptoms. So Lauren, uh, earlier in this podcast, you and I did some hating together, right? We talked about, <laughs> we talked about the doctor who told you you were going to be sick and uh, beyond diagnosis for the rest of your life. And we said, we hate her. Right? Yeah, we hate her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I don't know how you feel about your shaman, but quite frankly, I didn't really like the shaman's uh, uh, work with you either. So I said, I hate her, right? But we really shouldn't just be haters, right? Because there, there really should be some love here as well. And I think um, the first thing I want to prompt you to do is, is give me a reaction to Dr. Gedrick. Uh, let, let's, let, let's say I love her together. I love Dr. Gedrick. Yes, I do. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the spirit of uh, being fair to the general uh, medical community, because we were really down on doctors and, and, and doctors uh, causing you medical trauma, but there have been some doctors who have now been here to support you as well. Right. Um, Absolutely. I, did, 
I just share with you offline that I treated with Dr. Kelly and I absolutely loved her. So why don't we talk about Dr. Kelly? What do we, th- what do we feel about Dr. Kelly? I love Dr. Kelly. She's a great All right. person. So She's a great we doctor. From, <laughs> so we went from hating to loving now. And let's now talk about, let's talk about your journey and the transformation you went through, because this is quite frankly, as Matt had said, we've done 250 podcasts and I don't think we've interviewed someone who is, has made as powerful a transformation as you have. And I've, I've just really loved watching your story develop. Um, you were physically fragile to the point where you couldn't get out of a wheelchair. Uh, you know, your parents had to carry you to various places. You were socially fragile to the point where you were missing a hallucination. You were, you were um, um, emotionally fragile uh, to, to the point where, um, you know, you, you really couldn't even think and you couldn't, you, 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 you couldn't care for yourself. You couldn't respond, um, uh, I guess, neurologically and emotionally. You were, you were academically fragile. You couldn't go to school. Uh, you couldn't finish high school. You hadn't been in, in a classroom for about four years before you went to college, right? So you were, you were just a fragile human being. <laughs> and then you became the epitome of anti-fragile, where you got to the point where you were applying to the top colleges in the U.S. and you got into one of the top colleges in the U.S. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, that we see in our podcast is we see people getting better. And unfortunately, we see some people who don't get better. And the difference between the people who get better and the people who don't get better, in my view, is anti-fragility, Right. If you're fragile, you're afraid to do anything and everything. But if you become anti-fragile, there are no limits, right? And the reason you got better, the reason you overcame physical fragility and academic fragility and, and, and social fragility and emotional fragility is because you were willing to try anything. And because, because you shot for the stars, you, you, you ultimately got to the moon. You're at the top school in the Midwest after not being able to even finish high school because of this. So talk to us about how this, this notion of, of being um, anti-fragile was, was vital to you ultimately going not only on a healing journey, but ultimately shooting for the stars. That's a great word. I had never thought of that word, but that is like the perfect word. So I'm going to keep that anti-fragile. Um, it's actually the perfect word for you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really, I don't, I get, people ask me this. They ask me, you know, what, how did, how did, how did you go from, from one end of these end of the spectrum to the other? I think it was just, I just had this idea of what my life is going to be like. And I, so desperately wanted to go to college. I didn't really care when I was sick where I went. I just wanted to go to college. Um, and it was just that dream, that idea of applying to college, going to a top school. That was just something that I held close to my heart as something that I wanted for myself. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to major in or what I wanted to do with my life, but that was, I wanted to get a college education. I think part of that was instilled by my grandparents, specifically my grandpa, who has always pushed academics um, with me, not, you know, too much, but was always like concerned about grades and how I was doing, but most of it was internal. I wanted to do well. I wanted to learn. I've always felt most comfortable in a classroom. And so it just felt natural to me to 
have these dreams, to have these visions of going to school. And when I was really sick, I remember that when I took the PSAT my sophomore year, I would still get mail from all these different schools from, you know, Princeton, Chicago, Stanford, Tufts, Emory, Georgia Tech. And I remember keeping their postcards and hanging them on my wall and making this sort of vision board for myself because I, I wanted something that I could look at and think, you know, maybe this is possible. Maybe this could be the life that I have. And I think that I just kind of internalized that and use that as my inspiration to get well, that if I got better, then perhaps I could go to one of these schools. Well, but you, you would not have been able to go to the schools if you didn't believe you can go to those schools, right? I mean, there is, look, the, there's the- Oh, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of doubt. Well, of course there's been doubt. Look, and look, we're, we're, <laughs> we're all going to have to strike the balance between hubris and the imposter syndrome, right? And, yeah. um, you know, but you got past the imposter syndrome, you got past doubt, and you just kept moving and you just kept acting. And, and again, I, I certainly don't want to devalue your mom and your dad and the really important role they played in supporting you when you couldn't support yourself. But then you ultimately had to have the emotional mindset that allowed you to take all the steps that you were taking in order to be able to get better. And I think another part of the beauty of your transformation is your major, right? You're majoring in psychology, right? And yes. you know, one of the things that you said to Matt a little while ago is that, but for the support of your psychologist, you would not have had the confidence in order to be able to take all of the chances you took in order to be able to achieve what you achieved, right? Because it, look, it all begins with mindset. And, and, and you're, you're never going to be able to get better if you don't try. And you're not going to try if you don't believe that you have the potential of getting better, right? And so right. I think part of the whole beauty of your story, and it's a really beautiful story, is, is you. that you built this team of people around you. Um, but you also, again, get to give you credit, not only did you have this team that you built uh, to support you physically, you know, I mean, you, you had you had doctors, you had you had um, you had physical therapists, you had a whole team of people to support you physically, but you also built a team of people to support you emotionally. But again, to your credit, you also were very coachable, meaning you took the advice they gave you and you took the frameworks they gave you, and you did what you were instructed to do. So, because you were so coachable. You, you had all kinds of success that we've quite frankly only seen with one other person who had childhood line. And, and, and this is a really, really important, I think, uh, podcast, at least in our 250 podcast for, uh, for people to listen to so that they can have faith that they can get better despite childhood line. So you really, um, really are a, a beautiful model. So talk to us about now Thank how you. you believe the work that you did with your psychologist and the work that you did on mindset and the importance of that element. And I believe quite frankly, it's even more important than the physical elements is something you're now going to be able to bring to the community as a psychologist in, in, in your future. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that is a, a huge portion of my healing was mindset and just unloading all the trauma that I went through. I mean, there was just so much that I, I endured and, you know, when you're, when you have neurological Lyme and you're neurologically impaired, you're not processing how much trauma you're exposed to in the medical community and otherwise, whether it be, um, familial trauma, if, you know, your parents don't understand you, it goes on and on and on. Um, 
so the first thing that we did was kind of unpack the trauma because I was left when I started my work with my psychologist, I was left in this state where I was in shock. I didn't understand how I was at point A as a golfer, a student athlete in high school. And then fast forward now, two years later, I'm here. I didn't understand everything that happened. And I didn't understand why I had the insecurities that I had and why I had the fear that I had of people. And so we kind of peeled back the layers like an onion is the metaphor my psychologist always uses. And we found the, again, the root cause of what was causing all these mental hurdles for me. And this is how I then began the work to, to really understand what I went through and, and all the trauma that I went through and acknowledging the trauma that I went through and, and finding ways that my mind can help walk me down off the ledge, so to speak, that if I'm ever put in a situation where I'm exposed to a trigger or I feel as if, you know, I'm experiencing deja vu from something that I endured during treatment that I can, you know, cognitively with my prefrontal cortex, like engage a plan that I know will help me at least buffer the effects of what I'm experiencing. Obviously I'm not going to be bulletproof and things, you know, to this day still affect me with talking about my experience because it's, I'm 21. I haven't lived that long in the grand scheme of things. Two years ago is not that long ago in my life. So it it was a huge, huge thing. And I'm still working on it with her to this day, like how to reframe my mindset. And it's definitely hard when you have so much of the media, so much of school, if you're in school, so much of professors, so many people's trying to vie for your attention of how you should think, how you should feel about yourself, how you should feel about yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, based on what you're doing in your life. It's very easy to get caught up in this sense that you are not enough. You are not doing enough. Your story, even though you overcame all this, you are not enough. And it was just a lot of work that I continually still have to do about mindset and shifting gears, shifting perspectives. And I think the reason that I have ease in doing that is because of the hallucination I had, I'm able to shift perspective because there was a period of time where I was in reality, but I wasn't because he wasn't real. So I find it easy to switch from, from one moment in time to another because it was common nature in what I did with my illness. And obviously it's very difficult for someone who hasn't experienced Lyme or hasn't experienced hallucinations, but without that shift in thinking, without thinking positively, without thinking that you can do this, that this is possible. You have the capabilities to achieve X or to, to aspire to Y. You, you're really going to be hindered by your mental state because I mean, even in college, there's so many times where I'm sitting in a lecture hall or sitting in a class. And I think to myself, how am I here? There's people that are so much smarter than I am. They did all of these clubs. They did all these extracurriculars. They have all of this on their resume. And all I have to my name is I was really sick. I published a book and now I'm in college. And so there's just, again, so many outside sources that are competing and vying for your attention that you just always have to be aware of how you're thinking about yourself because how you think about yourself is the most important thing in healing. And you have to think so highly about yourself and know that if you can, you know, battle Lyme and conquer Lyme or not even conquer Lyme, but endure Lyme, you are a very strong person. So now let's 
get to the final question we ask everyone on the Thick Bootcamp podcast. <laughs> God forbid your mom, who was such a powerful force in your healing journey, came into your room right after this podcast and she had to take biting her on her leg. What would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey? I would take her probably immediately to Dr. Gedrick <laughs> and have her um, blood tested because I would want to make sure that everything's okay. And she was in fact tested when I was sick, but obviously things can change in an instant. But the first thing I would do is again, get her to a Lyme literate doctor, have a panel of blood work done, and then create a plan based on those results. I wouldn't freak out because as I've learned from, from my psychologist, that panicking in a time that is an emergency or a dire situation does nothing but add more stress. So I wouldn't panic, even though panic would be in my system. I wouldn't panic. I would subdue the panic and just try and react by thinking rather, rather than reacting. <laughs> Lauren Kingsley, always the psychologist and always making sure that her mindset is proper so that she can heal and act appropriately. I can't thank you enough for being on the Take Bootcamp podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Lauren Kingsley. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Lauren Kingsley, please visit her Instagram page at LB Kingsley or purchase her book titled Tickled Imagination, a Teenager's Reality Living with Undiagnosed Lyme Disease. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get our automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.